0: We're turning this morning in Luke to Luke chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 22 through 38. That is not the case. We'll be continuing through verse 38 tonight. We'll be stopping at verse 35 this morning. I feel almost like I've given away a little bit of tonight, saying we're going through 38 Instead, we're going to go through 35 this morning and then continue through 38 tonight at our Christmas celebration. These are two very pious people who give their testimony about Jesus. And as I've said in some other passages where we have these prophecies, I want you to hear these prophecies with joy. These aren't just statements of fact. These are factual statements that come from hearts that see Jesus Christ's arrival. This is not just... Oh, there is a truth. This is the joy you have only compounded. When somebody that you haven't seen in years, someone you love so much, finally comes, you know that feeling, right? Only this is much greater, much, much greater. We turn in the Scriptures to Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35, hear the word of God. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And for a sign that is opposed, and the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. I was writing yesterday with my youngest daughter. I didn't ask her if I could tell you this, but it's very complimentary, so I will. And we were talking together about whether or not Christmas was going to be white. Of course, you can look in a 10-day forecast, and if you have, you'll notice it's not. And in my Minnesota mind, that's not quite right. Because in where I grew up, you know, there was almost always a white Christmas. In my mind, there's a special kind of longing that happens at this time of year. I imagine a snowstorm, not just inches, but feet of snow. So much snow that I get to go outside on my little garden tractor and move it repeatedly, pushing it into giant piles. And so much snow that the roads are closed and no one can go anywhere and we're stuck at home. And everybody's there. It's not a problem. Our family is together. The fire's crackling in the fireplace. Everyone's happy. They're snacking and reading. And most of all, they're playing games, and I don't have to join in. There is a warmth physically and emotionally. Everything is just ideal. It's Norman Rockwell. It is just the best. Imagine that. But now the reality of what happened the last time we had a big snowstorm last year, so much snow, I had to go out repeatedly to move it and my hands and feet were cold and I forgot to fill up the tractor with gas, so I ran out and eventually had to shovel. The firewood was too wet and so it mostly smoked in the fireplace and filled up the living room with the smoke. We had to cancel plans and some of us were a little crabby. And I was short because my books were at church, and I didn't know how I was going to get everything done for Sunday. Mostly, I remember people staring at their phones to figure out when this was going to pass. It was not the ideal. And the history of Christianity, my friends, is more like the second than the first. All of that has, and your history as well. It's less than our ideal, at least in terms of the way that it looks to us. And it is because of the realism of the scriptures that we have come here this morning to what we call the prophecy of Simeon. Read in context, I believe it is more of a song. I've tried to encourage that. In fact, my greatest joy would be that after hearing this, you would leave with great joy. Not just hearing this truth and thinking, wow, I would like it if you said, pastor, that was a good sermon, but that's no, not, not most important to me. Way more important to me is that you would have the kind of joy that Simeon had when he saw Jesus in the temple. He longed for a day, and in all this failure of expectation in the past all the less than it should have been in the history of Israel and in his own life. At this climactic moment, he sees Jesus, the Messiah, come to the temple. Simeon's long for this day, and I hope that you sense the sense of fulfillment in what happens in this passage. And I want to give you something to mentally munch on, to spiritually savor Simeon lived in a less than ideal world. He had experienced less than what was ideal in the life of his people. He had been longing and looking. And now in this passage, in this song, in this prophecy, Simeon leads you to joy because in all of the looking with longing that happens in the human experience, even those who follow after Christ, eventually there comes a time, and this is where the joy comes from, where the promises of God are fulfilled. And I want to talk about, first of all, the looking and the longing, because Luke emphasizes that in the first part of what I read. And then I want to look at with you the joy of seeing God keep his promises, especially against that backdrop of the looking and the longing. So let's start with the looking and the longing And there are really two groups of people who help us understand that looking and longing in these verses. The first is his parents. At first, verses 21 and following could sound to us like almost surplus information. I don't mean to be disrespectful to the Word of God in saying that. It's just hard to know why Luke records all of this information about why they are coming to the temple. Well, I'm going to tell you why. It is because in these verses, Luke tries to explain to his readers that Jesus' own parents were looking and longing for the Messiah to come. In fact, against the backdrop of Jesus' parents, we have the song of Simeon. When we see they're looking and longing, we understand his. Why do I say this? What we read about in verses 22 through 24 is a very clear fulfilling of three Old Testament rituals around the birth of a child. I want to note them for you. I could explain them all very thoroughly, which would be fascinating, at least for me, but it might miss some of the forest for the trees, so I'm going to be more brief. If you want to take notes, as some of you do, you can jot down these passages and look them up later. The first... Ritual that was being fulfilled here was the purification ceremony for mothers of children that happened 40 days after the child was born. You can read about this in Leviticus 12, verses 2, 3, and 4. The second ritual is the presentation of the firstborn to the Lord. This comes from Exodus chapter 13. And it is a reflection on the killing of the firstborn of the Egyptians in Exodus and the sparing of the Israelite firstborn in that same story. The third ritual is that of dedication. And it is the dedication of the firstborn, especially to the Lord's service. And here, perhaps, the best example is in first chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapters. One and two. Now, even though we might not understand initially what's going on as these three are combined in these first couple of verses, what I want you to sense is sort of the rhythm and the flow of what Luke is writing. There's a building of these three from the occasion of Jesus' birth to the recognition that he belongs to the Lord, and finally, the dedication of Jesus to the particular service of the Lord. This progression would have been patently obvious to the readers who looked at Luke and had an awareness of the Old Testament, its law, and its narratives. That Jesus' parents were fulfilling these expectations meant they were very pious people. They wanted to serve the Lord. But even more than that, The fact they fulfilled these expectations would have meant to the original readers that his mother and father were doing what many Israelites would do. This was not just Joseph and Mary. This was the Israelite way. This was God's people. This is what they would do. And Luke is trying to tell us that as Mary and Joseph did these things, the Israelite parents as a whole would do these things. And Luke is trying to push us to see that the people of God throughout the Old Testament were moving in expectation for what the future held. They were anticipating, they were longing, they were looking for the day in which the blood of birth became... The blood of redemption rather than uncleanness. They were looking for the day in which the firstborn looked more than just a recollection of how God spared his people, delivered them from the land of Egypt, but rather they would think to themselves about how a firstborn would finally fulfill the redemptive plan of God. And a child being set aside for God's purposes... As happened in the case of Samuel in 1 Samuel, that Samuel really was anticipating the coming of one who would finally and fully fulfill the purposes of God. They are looking and for longing, they are looking in longing. Not just Joseph and Mary, but they're representing the people of God as a whole. And when you see that, then you can understand Simeon's word in verses 25 and 26. And there are three things about Simeon that really help us see how he, like Mary and Joseph, is looking and longing for the coming of the Messiah. First, Simeon is presented in this passage as a rather simple man. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet of great reputation. He, in fact, bears one of the most common names in Israel at this time, Simeon. He was probably in the top dozen of the names that were given to Israelite males at this point, the name of one of the sons of Jacob, he seems to be intentionally presented as the Israelite everyman. Just like Mary and Joseph are fulfilling what many Israelite parents would do, Simeon represents In his own way, the Israelite expectation as a whole. Additionally, he, like Jesus' parents, is notable for his piety. He's called righteous and devout. That might not mean a lot to us, but if you knew the Old Testament as well as these readers did, you would think immediately that this was a description given to Job in the Old Testament. And Luke had noted the same descriptors in talking about Zechariah, John the Baptist's son's just a few chapters earlier. This is a man who is spiritual. Every man, but a man of great spiritual integrity. And finally, the third thing you should know about Simeon, and this is the capstone to this description, is that he lives in the hope that God will bring his promise to pass. He is waiting for what Luke records as the consolation or the comfort of Israel. Later rabbis in the Israelite tradition would call the Messiah the great consoler or the great comforter of Israel. They would draw upon the language of the Old Testament in describing the Messiah this way. He's the one who finally brings to pass the hope of the Israelite nation. He is the completion of the expectation. He is the fullness of the comfort that God would offer. And Simeon in this passage is now filled especially by the Spirit as he looks and longs for the Messiah. He testifies. He calls out in the hearing of those in the temple. There would have been many people there. We think of him simply speaking to Joseph and Mary. It is more likely... He would have spoken to many ordinary worshipers who had come to the temple, and he cries out. He says, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon was looking and longing,
1: waiting. When I introduced this sermon, I set it
0: up hoping that you would see that in some ways we live in a similar reality. Simeon and Jesus' parents were looking and longing for the first coming of the Messiah. I'm hoping that you look and long for the second coming of the Messiah. Jesus has come and we celebrate that, we are going to celebrate, I think like you've never celebrated, when we celebrate tonight. No pressure on ginger in that.
1: I can honestly
0: say to you, there is no possibility that the redemptive plan of God will be thwarted. That's what the first coming of Jesus means. That's why there is such celebration. But at the same time, it is not difficult to realize that there is a lot of redemptive space still to be conquered by the kingship of Jesus Christ. I look at you and I see people who know that to be true. I hardly need to convince you of that fact. That when you look at your own lives and the world in which you live, you can look and long for things that have yet not come. And even though this is going to sound very counterintuitive, and I beg your sense of forgiveness if it comes as a stark suggestion, would you please consider, at least think about, injecting that sense of looking and longing into your Christmas celebration this year. How would you do that? Let me make a suggestion to you. It's not difficult. It is simply to allow yourself to think about what is not the way it ought to be. And I don't mean that you open your Christmas present and you're like, well, I thought I was getting this and it's this. Well, I better smile and say thank you. I'm talking about the deep things of God, what God desires, justice, mercy, the word of God spoken openly and freely. People... Worshiping Jesus Christ, the conflict that exists in our own hearts, the places where we struggle with sin, the places we struggle together. If your heart looks and longs for a time in which that will no longer be the case, you are also sharing the heart of Mary and Joseph and Simeon. They are noting here after the birth of Jesus, our looking and longing has finally come to completion. And what I'm encouraging you to do this Christmas season is to say with him, our looking and longing also anticipates a day in which the certain plan of God that will absolutely, absolutely take place, you look and long for the day in which that will finally be complete. You hear what I'm saying?
1: Does that resonate with your heart? I'm doubtful that I have to make that point
0: too strenuously. But if there's still a little bit in your heart that says, it's a strange sentiment, Pastor, to encourage us to have during Christmas time, one of the things I want to do is simply ask you to look. And you won't have to look very far to find it. You'll find violence and deceit, manipulation, ungodly anger, abuse, harm. It's all around us. And unfortunately, often, it's also in us. And it is not only wrong to ignore the reality of life, it is also very, very right to adopt the longing and looking of parents and Simeon and the saints of God. Let me encourage you, say it in your heart. Do it, say it in your heart. I'm looking and longing. Say it with your voice. The Christmas cards are meant to not only look back, my friend, but also to encourage you to look forward. Don't let that past fulfillment drown out. The signal call of the future reality. Say it, even shout it. Come, Lord Jesus. With the same vigor in your heart as Simeon. shouted with joy when he held the child Jesus. Looking and longing. But I want you to try to imagine this morning, this old man and what happened to him on that day. Because the looking and longing that he expressed so well in his life, the way Luke sets him up as a representative of that Israelite longing along with Mary and Joseph leads to a place where in verses 27 through 35 we see that looking and longing fulfilled. And this is where the real joy happens. To encourage you to be realistic about what happens in life, is not enough. You need to hear that God himself keeps his promises so that what you look and long for in Jesus Christ will eventually be fulfilled. Again, I want you to imagine this dear old man coming to the temple on that day. For years, he had been looking and longing. For generations, his people had. And now on this day, the Spirit of Christ reveals to him in some glorious way that the Christ is right there in the temple. Can you imagine what that would have been like? A man who had prayed for this. I imagine his parents and his grandparents, generations had prayed for this. Isaiah looked forward to it. He goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It goes that far. Can you imagine what it must have been like on that day for Simeon to go in the temple and the Spirit of God, in whatever way the Spirit moved, to say, and there Simeon is the Messiah. And Simeon takes Jesus in his arms. Some of you know that one of my favorite things to do as a pastor, I have a lot of favorite things, but this is near the top, is when your children are presented to the Lord for baptism and I get to hold them in my arms. I can honestly say I've never met one of them I didn't truly delight in. But that's nothing compared to what Simeon experienced in the temple on that morning. The looking and the longing was met with God keeping his promises in this child that he was holding in his arms. Because of the depth of the joy that should occur, I want you to think about this in three ways. First, the keeping of God's promise according to Simeon is obviously so. That's what Simeon says in the first part of his song. He says, God has kept his promise, and he has been kind enough to let Simeon see it. Simeon says, I would see it with my own eyes. God has kept his promise. Here he is. And Simeon says, this is not only for me, for my eyes. He's not only going to go tell it on the mountain, as we sang this morning, but he says, this salvation has been prepared in front of all peoples. God intends for you all to know this morning this is true. This is not Simeon's news. This is our news. Over and over in the Old Testament, this idea of God's salvation coming in the sight of all people is the definitive proof that God has acted and kept his promises. And now Simeon draws on passages like Isaiah 40, verse 5, where Isaiah, looking to the future, says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. And Simeon says, Look, it's obviously true. God has kept his promise. I'm holding the baby in my arms. The second thing that Simeon points out in his song is that God has precisely done what he promised. What I mean is that Simeon says that this child will be a light for salvation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That is a beautiful turn of phrase, but you should know that it comes from Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 3. I'm hoping if you go back and read that this afternoon, maybe you'll make a point of reading that before you eat your lunch. Isaiah 60, verses 1, 2, and 3. If you do, I would not be surprised if you jump out of your seats when you read it. It is that amazing, because in that passage, Isaiah prophesies about the coming of the light and the glory of the Lord. He says the hope of the coming Messiah is this, and when the Messiah does come according to verse 3, he says, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. In other words, Isaiah seems to say when the Messiah comes, then the nations will be drawn to what Israel has. You might say, well, that's very interesting news. Let me make it a little more personal. Let me tell you why you're going to jump out of your seats. Because you're the nations. That's why. You're the ones, I'm the one he's talking about here. Simeon says, and the nations will see it, and we see it, do we not? In Simeon's word, God has brought the Messiah to Israel, and the nations will come to see. This is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that the Gospel points to God's promise keeping that what he said in the Old Testament to Abraham, and then over and over again, that the Messiah would come not only for the people of Israel, but he would come for the nations, this is the first time Luke says, and look, God is keeping that promise. Which leads me to say this about the precision of God's promise fulfilled in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Apart from God's intention, I would be the swimming among those in the nations who would have no clue about your Son. I would have no idea whatsoever. I would be happily living my life, thinking that I must try harder, I must do better. But instead, because of Jesus Christ, the keeping of God's promise, I know the Messiah. And God has said, you, whoever you are, whatever nation you've come from, whatever your history This promise of the Messiah is also for you. The third thing I want to point out in what Simeon says, it's not only obvious that God kept his promise, he keeps his promise precisely, but he also keeps his promise decisively. And this goes to those last few verses that may seem like a little twist, a curveball in what happens in this passage. At the very end, these last few verses we read, you'll notice it ends with a challenge. Jesus' arrival, Simeon said, would lead to, I would best describe, as a crisis moment for many. Mary's own heart would be pierced through as she watches the harm that comes to her child. And the hearts of many in the Israelite nation would be deeply challenged. Would they rise to welcome the coming of the Messiah in faith, or would they fall away in disbelief? For the latter group, their looking and longing is met with pure disappointment. That is, they've looked and longed and what they've come to realize that in Jesus Christ, they must abandon themselves and follow him and they go away deeply disappointed. They simply want someone who would add a layer on their life, approve of who they were, say, of course, of course I want you to be my disciple. How could I not? You're so well put together. You keep the law. These are the ones who go away disappointed. But those who humble themselves before the Lord... Those who see Jesus and the grace He offers from the prostitute to the Pharisee, they rise in faith by the Spirit of God to trust in Jesus and to find the completion of all of God's promises in Jesus. In order for me to faithfully, I think, explain this text to you, I needed to communicate joy, and I hope you know it. But I also have to communicate this challenge because it's where the passage ends. It is human to long and to look for something, it is spirit led to look and for long for a day in which sin and all of its fa- effects will be taken away in here and out here. But it is truly spirit led. To come to a place in which our looking and longing is met alone in Jesus Christ. That is nothing short than His grace. And this morning in the song of Simeon, our God offers it to you freely. Then all the looking and longing that is found in your heart, you would find a deep completion of the promises of God in Jesus Christ for you. When I started this morning, I almost read through verse 38. I didn't. Tonight we will. Because Anna, dear Anna, will lead us to a place of ultimate contentment in Jesus Christ. Simeon challenges us first, and Anna leads us to a place that is intended to give you ultimate comfort. Until then, let's bow in prayer. Father, I am thankful simply as your son, that the song of Simeon exists. Because there are many times in my own life, and this would be true for all of us, where we see a world in which we look and long for so much more than what there is. And maybe we are told, or maybe we just have this feeling that at this time of year, really we should set those things aside they're not really appropriate for the Christmas season just sing more carols and drink some eggnog but father the beautiful thing about your word the amazing thing about Jesus coming into this world is unlike any other place in our world where we encourage to be unrealistic in the word of god we see things as they truly are and instead of being told just ignore that there's nothing to see you're going to be fine The Word of God says it truly is worse than you could ever imagine. But the solution in Jesus Christ is far, far greater than your heart could ever hope for. And so we are glad this morning for this song, and we sing it along with our Father in the face, Simeon. And look forward to the day when we will sing it with Him in eternity. We ask, as saints have, come soon, Lord Jesus. That the celebration of Jesus' first coming would eventually be eclipsed with the utter joy of Jesus' second. Father, hear us as we pray and now as we sing, for we come in Jesus' name. Amen.